My father was in the army for 22 years and was demobbed in October 1945. We lived in St Paul's in two rooms with five children and uh, my dad literally haunted the council house until a few days before Christmas Day we were given a council house in Southmead. My mother was overjoyed, absolutely. We'd never had a house before. We'd always gone all over the country with with the army and been in flats mostly. Well, it was a new estate, so we didn't know it was going to turn out. It was all sort of young parents with, with, with young kids. Because I moved in South when I was about three. Because uh, houses down there were slum clearance. They was all pulled down. And the people downtown, they moved out here. And Ringwood Crescent, when I moved into Ringwood, there was no lights, no lamps, no roads, no payments when we moved in there. I was born in St Paul's. We had to move out because they called it the slum clearance. But it was poverty. It was really in the dark parts of Bristol. You know, I had the two brothers and sisters. We were all, like, sleeping in one great big room. And people that were there, they came down with their buckets, one toilet. You can imagine it was terrible. Dad couldn't get work on the docks. He'd walk from Milk Street, which is where I live, to Avonmouth, and uh, come back. What's the matter, Tom? There's no work, no work. So I was about 10 when I came out to Southmead, 1936, and I was scared. We were the underdogs, put it that way, you know. We had nothing, had absolutely nothing when we came here. Believe it or not, we were drinking out of jam jars. My dad made lockers for our bedrooms with orange boxes, and my mum sewed curtains and put them around them. And we were always hungry. Always. I can't ever remember not being hungry. So you go through the door, there was a light switch on the wall. It was brass light switch <laughs> mounted on a wooden batterie. To your right was a door to go into the front room. In this particular house was a Welsh dresser fitted by the council. You had a fireplace, cast iron and tile. There was no power points at all. If you had to do ironing, you had to plug into the light pendant. And all the light holders were provided by the council with white council light shade. Well, it was a three-bedroom council house. It was the first time we had a toilet, a proper toilet, not just a piece of wood with a hole in the middle. And we had the bathroom to have a bath. We thought we were in heaven. You know, brand new council house. Very um, austere, you know, nothing posh. And a nice kitchen, big old sink, <laughs> wooden draining board, and a boiler in the corner. You boiled the water and had a pump on the wall, and as you pumped it, you pumped your hot water through into your outer bath, and the water come out of the tap into the bath. <laughs> it's pretty basic. Anything that wanted to go through the house had to come through the front door. So the coalman came in through the front door with his sacks and the coal bunker was under the stairs at the back of the house. The stairs, you came in the front door and the stairs immediately went up. So when your coal was delivered, they'd empty up the sacks of coal and the dust was all over the kitchen. Your toilet was outside the back door, right? And the bathroom was off the kitchen. Now who, it must have been a man that designed it because why didn't he design a toilet near the bathroom? 
<laughs> and the coal shed outside. <laughs> General conditions. The rents are due in advance on Monday in each week and no arrears will be allowed. The collector of the corporation will collect the rents weekly and give receipts, therefore, in a rent book. Well, the rent books my mum saved right from the first year that they were there. They moved into the brand new council house in 1938. I was two when we moved into 20 Wilton Close. I guess that they were probably excited because it would have been a brand new neighbourhood, you know, new friends to be made. The permitted number for the dwelling to which this rent book relates is eight persons. In counting the number of persons, each child under 10 years of age counts as half a person and a child of less than one year is not counted at all. The rent man came on the dock every week. Usually what happened was the rent book was put on the side, the money was put in the rent book, the, the man came and he signed and in some of them you will see later on the rent man had to actually sign it over a Tupney stamp. Yeah, I think he was probably one of the council officials that was paid to do that. I mean, quite an onerous task when you think about it, because he's carrying around quite a lot of money at the end of the day. If my memory is correct, the rent on the first rent book was 11 shillings and 10 pence in old money. I've worked out that that is equivalent, I think, to about 55 pence in new money. Uh, inside the front page and inside the back cover are a whole host of regulations. No tenant will be permitted to assign or underlet the premises or any part thereof or take in lodgers or to carry on upon the premises any trade, profession or business or to display advertisements or use the premises otherwise than a private dwelling house. Um, you basically didn't step out of line at all, which is a little bit different than what it is now. This is a true story. We had wardens during the war. When the bombs were falling, they'd come in and put the bombs out. And um, my brothers were... Tommy was in the Air Force. Arthur was in the Somerset Light Infantry. He never came back. He died in that one. And then um, I looked out at the garden and I said to our mum, because it was all up high, only a young girl I was, I said, Mum, how are we going to get this garden dug? She said, I don't know. She said, the boys ain't here to dig it. And Dad was dead. He dropped dead in the garden in Fortis. So I thought to myself, this air raid precaution wardens. So I shouted out, there's a bomb in my garden, please get it out. There weren't no bomb. So they came and dug it, you know, really dug it nicely. And they couldn't find anything. I said, well, I said, I'm sure I saw one go in. And I thanked them very much. And they never did know. <laughs> I had to leave school at 14. Our mum said, well, you've got to get a job because your boys are in the forces and your sister's up in London. I said, well, what can I do? I said, I want to go in the army or the air force. She said, you can't go in until you're 18. That was the rules. And um, I, I didn't look old. I, I used to wear anchor socks. They said she's never old enough to work, but I did. There was plenty of jobs, you know, because the boys had gone abroad. I went up the BAC, Bristol Aircraft. I became a welder, what you call a spot welder, welding all the parts of the planes, the little wheels and things, and all the instruments inside, and I had to weld things together. But we had to go to work, because the war was on. Wartime girls. We are the South Mead girls. We are the South Mead girls. We know our manners. We pay our tanners. We are respected wherever we may go, as we walk along the South Mead road. 
doors and windows open wide. We are the girls of Southmead. We just do as we do, please. We are the Southmead girls. Wonderful, wonderful days. We had one bloke came in and... Um, have you ever heard of the conscientious objector? They don't want to go in the forces because they're scared they're going to get killed. And we all banged our, our toes on the benches and he just ran out, yeah. You know, he was saying, oh, war is no good. I said, well, you tell me that. I said, I just lost a lovely brother. I said, you refuse to fight for your country. He was a bit embarrassed. We left there in 1945 because the boys came back from the war the lucky ones and they wanted their jobs back so we had to leave and then I got a job as a barmaid and that's why I got accustomed to the booze you know I love the drink you got a, you got a drink there? During the war planes come from Filton down River Crescent across the road and the pom-pom guns was going boom, 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 all behind him, chasing him down. And he sat come. on top of the shelter oh, watching yeah. it. And his mother the came Anderson in and gave him a good idea to say, get in that shelter, because she, she was frightened for him, but he didn't care. He was just sat on just top of the shelter. But you know there was the big raid on Bristol. Henry's oh. sister was born yeah. in that raid, and Henry had to go as a little boy running through the streets of Southmead with all this going on up in the sky to fetch his Auntie Liz, who lived in Easy Road, because Mum was in the house just getting on with her baby. Well, yeah. I was only like this yeah. one down, there was a guns going every, yeah. and that's when Filton got bombed. I was beside the school, near the caretakers. I had an upset stomach. And in course them days, all the school toilets had entrances from out in the playground. And I came out of the toilet and everybody had gone to the shelters. And I watched this 50 bomb bomber raid coming over Bristol in the daylight. Uh, they had put a Polish squadron of probably Spitfires. Those six went up amongst those 50 bombers, which were over Bristol at the time, and knocked seven bells out of them. They never made the works. And I always remember standing there watching it. Of course, the shrapnel that came down, mostly wasn't the damage of aircraft or bombs, it was mostly our attack and stuff that was coming down. Then we'd get, if you would, oh, if you got a bit of shrapnel, collected a bit of shrapnel, sometimes it was hot when you picked it up. Of course, um, we moved in 38, the war started in 39, and they constructed an Anderson shelter in the back and they dug a big pit, built the Anderson shelter, put all the soil over the top. You used that to grow marrows and things like that. I got the blame on our, our shelter. What happened is that there was a clang in the night and the next morning I got a, a rocket because I was supposed to have chopped a cabbage off that was growing on top of the shelter. But it was a piece of shrapnel because I had to get out in the end. Shrapnel had taken the cabbage off. Every night we'd have to go down in the shutters and a funny story, my mother was very deaf. The um, sirens went, you know, oh, terrible noise. We all drifted down to the shutters, forgot about our mother. We were coming back to our house in the pitch black dark across the road. I said, Mum, where are you going? She said, I just heard the siren. I said, that was the old clearing. She was going back down <laughs> to sit in the shelter on her own. 
the, the council obviously put them in for you. They were, you were underground, you went down three or four steps and had a candle. And it was very scary because you would hear planes going over and you could hear bombs, you could hear bombs being dropped. We came up from um, the area shelter to find that all our doors of our council house and the windows were all blown in. And there had been a bomb dropped in Corford Road. A massive crater was there. But uh, it was a shock to come back to find it. My mum was crying, you know, that our house had been hit like that. Sometimes if we could hear the area sirens, we didn't always have time to get to the shelter. And mum and I would go under our dining table and just hide under the table. People would have been injured, if not killed. Mm. A lot of the people that lived in Southmead worked at the Clifton Laundry. On Southmead Road, where I worked for years, and of course, the people who lived in Clifton were the only ones that could afford to send laundry. And they used to pack it in uh, boxes with tissue paper, and it was high-class laundry. Well, then as the time went on, they did what they call a semi-finished laundry, a bag wash. You just send it, they wash it and dry it and put it back in the bag and charge you so much a pound, you know. I went in as an office junior and then progressed to be a customer relations officer. And of course, in those days, people would buy a set of bed linen or two sheets and two pillowcases. And if you lost one pillowcase, they wanted a claim for the whole set. So we used to have quite a lot of battles about that. Were those claims always genuine? No. Americans, you know, there was a big camp for Americans. And of course the girls used to go mad when these Americans would come in with their laundry because they would bring them candy and stockings. And I think there was about four or five of them married GIs and went to America. One girl was quite attractive. One of the engineers that worked on all the washing machines and things, um, they fancied each other and had a sort of relationship. And the husband of the girl found out about it and he came up one morning and stabbed the engineer. Oh, I tell you, it was high drama. All, all these things happen. <laughs> what I want to talk about is the Teddy Boy era, which began in 1954, when Southmead instigated the Teddy Boys. And then before you knew where it was, Barton Hill had a Teddy Boy sacked, Lawrence Hill, and gradually it spread all around Bristol and then all around England. They just started wearing Edwardian clothes, long jackets, bootlace ties. Drain pipe trousers, very tight, you'd have to lie on the bed to, to get them on. It'd take about, literally about a quarter of an hour to get them on, they were so skin tight. Uh, blue suede shoes, but the soles were about oh, an inch and a half thick. They had uh, long sideboards in their hair, or sideburns as they were called then, and a quiff. And their weapons were flick knives, knuckle dusters. Uh, what they call safety razors, they, they, that would be a, a razor blade, which you screw into a handle to, to shave. But the actual blade, they'd, they'd sew it inside their lapels. So if another teddy boy grabbed them by the lapels like that, it would cut their fingers to shreds. And the leader of the Southmead teddy boys was called Brian Sugar. And he was famous all over the country. The news of the world, 
They did a full story about the size me Ted's, and the headline was What Makes Sugar Tick? I was only 16, so I was sort of weighed down a pecking order, but they travel all around the country, and they go into a local calf somewhere, all the local Ted's would be in there, and as soon as these all strange teddy boys walk in, they jump up immediately and start ready to fight. And all Sugar would say was, I'm Sugar, Southmead. And he straight away, they say, oh, all right, mate, how are you getting on? Like a coffee, cup of tea, get you a Coke? Terrified. If they went to, say, Barton Hill or Lawrence Weston or, or, or wherever, Harkliff, to seek other teddy boys, have a gang battle, I'd keep out of that, I wouldn't go. I'd just hang around them. We used to sit outside the stand of England, and we'd all sit around chatting, and eventually they'd go off to fight somewhere, and I'd just go home, because I was too young. I mean, they'd go to Weston, on the train, about 30 of them. The Western people would hear they were coming and they'd all go home. They didn't need to because Teddy Boys wouldn't hurt ordinary people. But they'd be terrified, they'd all go in and Western would become a ghost town. And then in the autumn of 1958, Brian Sugar went to Barton Hill, went into a calf, usual thing, all the Ted's in there jumped out ready to fight. He said, Sugar, Southmead. And this chap jumped up and said, I'm John Little, Barton Hill. And they fought and Sugar lost. The story goes that Sugar was drunk. I wasn't able to perform properly. His reputation had gone, the Southmead Ted's broke up, and as they broke up, all the other ones broke up, and by the end of 58, no more Ted's. For about another 10 years, right up until the 60s, Southmead, as a whole, had this reputation as being the roughest, toughest area in Bristol. It was Boxing Day, 1963 or 1964. We had a fire at the house that we lived in, in one Danbury Walk. What caused the fire was a faulty socket in the front room, which the Christmas tree was plugged into. There was a Christmas tree light to call the fire, wasn't it? How um, did you know the house was on fire? Dad woke up because he had a dog that was trapped in the front room. He alerted Dad, so Dad went down and opened the door. The flames just set him back, so he shut the door again. I jumped out of bed and you burn your feet on the floor because the floor was so hot that you didn't want to stand in one place too long. The outside of the front door, all the paint was bubbling. Did your dad not cue all the kids up at the top of the stairs and push them down out the front doors open and push them all out? Well, we, I have 14 brothers and sisters. We were trying to get them down the stairs, but when you get down the stairs, you had to go past more or less where the fire was, where the, where the heat was. And as soon as they got down in there, they tried coming back up the stairs, so it was a bit difficult getting them out, because they were all toddlers, really. And it was snowing, and John jumped on his bike, he had no shoes or anything on, and rode up to the um, phone bar to phone the fire brigade. Calvin was still upstairs asleep in the cot. So I ran back into the house and went upstairs and dragged him out of the cot by his feet. I didn't know which way he was legged, you couldn't see nothing for smoke. But we managed to get them all out with no injuries. Apart from seeing his eyebrows and hair and stuff like that. Dad went round to the back and broke in through the kitchen window to go in and rescue his dog on his hands and knees. The fire brigade actually brought the dog back to life more or less. They give the dog oxygen out in the front garden. The evening post come and took photographs of the family in the front garden. And I remember the reporter saying that he'd love a cup of tea. And Dad said, well, we've got nothing in there to make it. So... <laughs> He went up to the shops at the reporter and bought some tea bags and some sugar <laughs> for us to make a cup of tea. <laughs> the neighbours in the walk were very good. There was a few neighbours in the walk that took different ones in. Until we can get the house sorted out, they can move back in. Because a council wouldn't move you out because they never have facilities 
anywhere else to put you. So we all got stuck in and cleaned the house back up, ready for um to move back in again. When I was one, I brought to Southmead when the family had moved up there. My father had beaten my mother in a, a, a domestic fighting abuse and all the rest of it. I could never sleep as a kid. I can remember the fights and then the awful silence after that. And, and silence almost was worse because, I, I, you know, it was like, what's going to happen next, that kind of thing. And we didn't have any money. Uh, bed clothes, you know, were, were the old army, great coats and all these kind of things. Um, it was Dickens, really. And for a little kid with no boundaries, very poor and all the rest of it, no wonder I, I learned how to tough it out, really, and to become probably as violent as I could be, really, even as a little kid, uh, because that was seemed like the answer to everything, really. And, you know, I love Southmead, love the area, but I, I am very honest about what situations are here sometimes. And I know that there's 336 problem families now, and I bet you, you know, little kids are experiencing what I did as well. So that's why I do my work, really. My f first office was a satchel, you know, where, where I used to get the paraphernalia, little uh, cards, homemade cards and all this. And then we graduated to a, a telephone on the wall at the White Church, <laughs> got some money, um, gradually scrounging and giving talks in different places where I've never done before. I remember being terrified, really, and just writing it down on bits of paper. That's when a, 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 an MP for the area asked me, have you got a business plan? We need to have a toilet paper, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and, and, and people come in, senior social services people, um, saying, Mike, but what is counselling? What are you going to do? And, and it's like, I'm trying to explain that I'm going to help people uh, overcome what they're facing and, and help them to live a life. I mean, the clients used to come to me then, um, drug addicts, uh, being abused, all you name it, and this happened. And I get them soup and tins of soup and get them a bit of warmth and those kind of things. And um, they found it really strange because I used to listen to them rather than telling them what to do. So gradually built that kind of respect, I think. It's about recognising the, the impact of poverty and deprivation, what it has on, on the soul of people. It's about how our identities are shaped in childhood, but how, too, we can change that identity in, in adulthood, provided um, we've got someone who understands what um, abuse is. I'll never, ever forget my abuse, but I've come to terms with it. It's not my driver now. I went to Fontour Road School, in my class was David Prowse. He was quite intelligent, but very quiet, very quiet lad. And the photographs which I have got show him, the tallest in the class, he always was, in the back row, probably almost six foot when he was 13, I would say. He's six foot eight now. He left when he was about 13 to go to technical school. While he was there, he developed a leg problem. I think it may have been polio. And he was at a hospital for about two years with leg irons on. But it turned out in the end he didn't need them. I didn't see him again until he was a bouncer then, and he was probably 17, 18 at the Glen. I remember going there and he said, Joan Hanford. And I said, Dave Browse. And I haven't seen him since then. But I followed him on the television in Radio Bristol. Many years before I was born, I think it was um, during the Second World War, my mum very kindly took in 
Dave Prowse and his mum and his sister. My mum always said they were evacuees from Wales. Now, it should have been maybe the other way round, but I, I, I don't know. That's what my mum told me. Um, and they, uh, they stayed with us for a few months. And because his legs needed strengthening, Dave Prowse used to do weight training in my dad's garden shed. Dave Prowse lived in um, a little cul-de-sac off of Southmead Road. And he was a bouncer up the Glen, which was um, the Teddy Boy nightclub they all used to go there from 54 to 56. But he was massive, he was about six foot six and about 22 stone. And because he lived in Southmead, of course in the daytime he'd be walking to the shops or something and he'd bump into Teddy Boys and they'd recognise him and say yay! But he used to make fun of him and eventually Dave Prowse became Darth Vader in Star Wars. Not the voice, he wouldn't use his voice because he was Bristolian. And he was a Green Cross code man as well. I worked in Southmead for 38 years, 27 I taught at Greenway Boys School, I think the school was opened in 55. Previous to that, the children of Southmead used to be bused to Penpole. Well, when I started, I taught everything. Then I specialised in rural studies and we built up a really great department where we had four or five teachers and the school became known throughout Bristol. We had a large garden which had to be maintained. Um, we kept bees, we bottled our own honey and everything. Um, we covered farming, we grew everything. Gourds, potatoes, carrots, turnips, everything that people would, would normally grow in a garden. And all the crops were sold and uh, we included winemaking, but no one was allowed to take wine home. The parents had to come up and collect. Have you got any other stories about specific things that happened at the school? We had grown all this fruit and everything was ready for picking. This was Friday. When I come in on the Monday, it had all gone. Somebody had been up and stolen it over the weekend, so they're not going to get away with this. I'd seen the nurse and I'd got her to prepare some horrible tasting but harmless substance. So I got up on the stage and I said, the fruit had been sprayed with poison, so if you've eaten any of it, you are likely to have very serious problems. But if you come to me, I've got something prepared that you can drink. You will not be punished. So when I had five little ones there, <laughs> they said they'd all been... So I made them drink this stuff and they spluttered and hated it. And that was that. And I thought, well, at least they'll think twice again. Anyway, after dinner, one of the little lads came back and he said, could he have some more? And I couldn't believe it. And I said, why? He said, my mother was stealing with us and I don't want her to die. <laughs> I really don't wish that it should be known that I live life in a council house home and I mustn't talk posh or act all that bright because for someone like me, well, that just isn't right. My children were scrubbed or sent off to school well, with learning. They soon get a hang of the rules. They know if they try and work really hard at the end, they can get a signing on card. Then they can claim social, maybe the dole, and know that they play out their own given role. But I know my own kind, and I know what they're worth. 
of the hopes and the dreams that are with them from birth to live and to work, earn respect or their own and be free and at peace in the council house home. <laughs> I tried to remember it and I did. It was discussed and decided to start up a Southmead Creative Writers Group. I think we're talking about 1982 in that area. It was really a very, very original and in a way experimental. I've never passed an exam in my life. And this particular evening, I went along to the first writers group and there was, I think, the representative of adult education um, our local ward councillors, a policeman, and in a way we were revolutionary in changing people's attitudes towards literature in Bristol generally. You could write in a way that was of ordinary people's language and the way people formed sentences. You know, you can't start a sentence with and, but you could. I met people from different walks of life entirely different from my experience. You see Southmead as a whole, I love it and hate it. And that's the truth because I love it for a safe security of home, for the people you can go up the road and onto the shops and say hello Mrs. So-and-so or hello some. You always see somebody and there's somebody there. We're all just trying to get along in life. But I hate it for its restrictions. It imposes on people through certain social conditions and opportunities.